Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everyone and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. This evening I am talking with Johanna who has been gracious enough to come and sit with me and share her story. You have a situation that puts you in the middle of racism. That's a very interesting introduction. I guess my life is just a race story, you know, not so much the fact that I'm going through something specific right now, but I've come to some realizations and you're willing to sit with me and talk about it. So I'm willing to. You went ahead and filled out an agenda. And the first bullet point that you had was why talk about this? Yes, I did put that because initially I didn't know if my experiences just in my life were worth talking about in general, but I guess it is mainly because I have two daughters and I see the way that I was brought up and the experiences that I lived and I'm still living in the same place, which is Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And my kids could potentially go through things that I have gone through. And so I thought it was interesting Why am I even talking about this at all? It's the upbringing that I had here in Montreal. Well, a little bit outside of Montreal too, but in Quebec mainly. And how that affected me now as an adult, as a Black woman. I was born here in Montreal. My mother is from Grenada and my dad's from Trinidad. They moved here 30-something years ago. They moved here and my mom worked taking care of other people my whole life. And she worked living in and taking care of seniors and so on and people in their homes. It's an interesting feeling that my mom has that job. (laughs) She's always taking care of white people in their homes. And that's something that has come about in our talks and our relationship. What about your father? He works as a welder. He moved here with my mom. Other than that, he lived in the United States and they both came here and have been surviving here since then. My family is very mixed. It's a a combined family. Like my dad had kids, my mom has kids, and then I'm the child that they have together. We lived here in the West Island of Montreal, and then we moved to Chattagay. It's a little bit outside of Montreal. Montreal is a metropolitan, so we have a lot of multiculturalism here, but I was just born here. And then when I started to have experiences as a child, so like uh, elementary school, so five, six, you know, I have memories at that age, is when we moved to Chateaugay. And that move really marked me now that I look back at it because of where we lived. Chateaugay is is more countryside-ish. 
So you'll see more Quebecers, less immigration moves out there now. If you look at Chattagay, it's very different. But when I was there in the 90s, I was the only Black girl in my school. That experience was intense. It was intense now that I look back at it. During it, I managed it. But when I look back at it now, I'm like, wow, I, I lived some pretty dramatic experiences. Being the only Black girl in the school exposed me to having a lot of aggressions towards me to begin with. And then after living those aggressions and not realizing that they were aggressions, they become internalized. I internalize those incidents and then they become part of my thought process. For example, I'm sure this has happened to many, many, many people, but I would bring food, the Caribbean food to school and people would comment on it. And that would be discouraging for me to bring it out again in public or the way that my hair was done would be so exotic, cornrows and braids, and people would touch them. And I was just an attraction at school. When you say that you internalized it, I'm just curious, does that mean that you internalized it in a way that it made you feel uncomfortable about it? Or did it make you feel wary of the people around you? I wasn't wary of the people around me. Although now, if those instances were to happen, I would feel uncomfortable and I would choose to not experience those things. So, for example, if they were saying that something was unattractive, you were having the experience of feeling like it was really unattractive. It wasn't that you were saying, oh, I don't want them to see this. I think it's attractive, but they won't like it and they'll make fun of it. Oh, no, I think I 100% internalized, like, cut that out. <laughs> okay. And okay. I did that a lot, especially in the beginning. There's a few factors that come into play when I was in elementary school is the fact that in Quebec, we have a law 101, where if your parents didn't go to an English school, so my parents didn't go to an English school here, they didn't go to school at all here, which puts me in the category of people that have to go to French school by law. So I didn't speak French. At home, we didn't speak French. Nobody spoke French. And then in elementary with zero French, I go to school in Chattagay. And I'm also Black. And there's no one else that's Black. So I don't speak the language. I don't look like anyone else. And I have a lot of differences. It kind of became automatic and subconscious, a defense mechanism to continuously adapt to everything. I couldn't speak the language. So for one, I was just observing everyone observing their reactions to me and their reactions to each other, trying to get cues of what's going on, what to say, where to stand in line and so on and so forth. And then eventually I learned the language and then I would hear and understand what people are saying. At the time, things that they said weren't painful, I guess initially might be like, oh, so many things are embarrassing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the things I bring to school, the way that I speak, the way that I look. And then I morphed as best as I could to blend in. No child that I know of, back in the day at least, wanted to stand out from their peers so much. There's just one memory, probably one of the only instances where I felt like, oh, why would you guys say that? <laughs> you know, just because I'm Black and that's the only time. Otherwise, I live my life being as under the radar as possible and blending in and Part of doing that was also like, oh, you're making fun of me. 
how do I get out of this situation? But okay, so I'll make fun of myself first, you know, I'll get all this awkward stuff out of the way. And then you'll just chill with me, you know, none of the things that I experienced, I chalked up anyways, to being black, or I somehow never had that thought, my parents never talked to me about race. So I just kind of knew I was different because I can see it. I could see how people are acting. But then I was like, I got to survive here. It just didn't click that all these things that were happening to me could be, you know, like, that sounds foolish. No, no, it doesn't at all. Do you think that because there were so many factors, like you said, there was the language and you had just moved and your parents didn't speak French and your food was different. Do you think that somehow the idea that a lot of this could be because you're Black got buried in an avalanche of differences that you just attributed it to? It's just, I'm new, I'm different. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think there were many factors. We had just moved into this town and there were a lot of emotions and I just wanted to survive. So I didn't really have that kind of had depth in my thought process for sure, (laughs) but not on that at all. It might just be because of the countries that we're living in. The history of the United States is different than the history of Canada. Canada has a racist history as well. Black people were enslaved here as well. Canada has its history with indigenous people as well. But the intensity that we all know for like black history in the United States, race is talked about all the time. Systemic racism in the United States is known. It's not like it could be swept under the rug. It's so big. And I think that history dictates how the societies are today. Even till this day, the government of Quebec says there's no systemic racism. It's baffling. I just don't understand it. And they say that out loud on the TV. The systemic racism that's here, I feel like as a general blanket statement for at least me and some people that I know, you could live your life here, at least in Montreal, that could only speak about Montreal and where I am. A lot of people are like, I've never had, I've never, Black people, I've never experienced racism. And you're like, huh? (laughs) My mom says that. We talked a little bit about this in the agenda. I had said that I had a similar experience with sexism, where I went through a lot of my life saying I'd never been sexually assaulted, that I didn't experience much sexism. And then later, when I began to understand what sexual assault is, and when I began to understand what sexism looks like, I began to realize that it wasn't that I wasn't experiencing it. It was that I didn't know that I was experiencing it because to me, it was so normal and I was so saturated in it. I just assumed this is how everybody walks around. And then when I started to realize it's not, that's when I clued in that there's probably a lot of people who don't think they're experiencing sexism that are not. I don't think I'm alone in that. With any of the marginalized groups, you have these, I, I use a, an analogy sometimes of a, of a car accident where people are sitting in different parts of the car, like someone's in the driver's seat, someone's in the back seat, someone's in the passenger seat, the car gets hit. And depending on where you sit, you may walk away with a scratch or you may walk away, not walk away at all right? You Mm -hmm. might end up dead because of the impact. That's the nature of a car accident. It's not going to impact everybody the same way usually. Depending on where you're sitting in the community, if you're wealthy, for example, if you're healthy, if you have disability, if you are poor, you use the word intensity, it can increase or decrease the intensity to which you experience 
the marginalization mm -hmm. of the community that you're in. So if you're black and you're disabled, you might see a whole lot more what racism looks like than somebody who is wealthy and well-treated. And there might still be racism happening, but it's not going to be manifesting in the same way that might be as overt. That is definitely the case for me in the sense that I didn't realize what was going on. And then as time passed and I looked at it with different eyes, I could see, oh, wait, actually, in fact, this is what's going on. And this has been what's going on. And I think that having these conversations with my mother as well has clued her into it. And she's able to look at her life with a different lens. She doesn't talk about this that much. But if I were to say something happened to me, and I'm wondering if this injustice happened because I happen to be Black, she no longer dismisses it. She goes, that's a possibility. Many Black people experience, you know, you, you have an experience and you wonder, I mean, if you're conscious about this possibility, which I wasn't always, and you wonder, could this have happened because I'm Black? Some people might rush to you and say, no, absolutely not. It's because of this and it's because of that. It's definitely not like that's the last thing. And it's like, well, it's a possibility. My mom used to be of that kind, you know, be like, well, you know, but now we're having these conversations and they're interesting. Growing up, part of it is the fact that my parents didn't talk about this at all. My sisters are on other things, you know, probably going through their own things as well. They're all teenagers. I was the youngest, so I was just left to figure it all out. My sisters, they all grew up and moved out. And I was basically an only child for a really long time because my sisters are a lot older than me. And through myself is how I realized some of the things that I had experienced in the past. And not only in the past, now I'm looking at my life and things that have happened within this last year that are like, wow, I can't believe it. And then that bothers me because I'm like, oh, how have I been living my whole life being beat up this way and not even to realize it? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The George Floyd murder and the uprising of Black Lives Matter really shook me. It shook me to take more consciousness of myself. Just growing up, just maturing made me look back at some experiences and think this. But I got to say that George Floyd, the George Floyd incident really, really shook me. There were a lot of protests in Montreal. I had been actively protesting things in my younger youth. But I had two young kids and I got busy in my nursing and all these things. But this really bothered me. I mean, there were a lot of Black people murdered by the police in the United States. But this specific incident and the way that the riots were in the States, and I was of an age where I could not do something about it. Protesting is putting your voice out there and, and protesting something that you think is important. But really do something about that situation. There's not much other than voice your opinion. And that's what I wanted to do. I want to do this. I felt it. And I was kind of annoyed because right before then, 
I had been reading a lot, reading like the Book of Negroes. And like, I had just been learning Black history for myself. I wasn't taught that from my siblings, from my parents, from school. And I was in an identity crisis. I think that might be what made the George Floyd incident hit me so much is because I was also wondering to myself, do I even belong in the Black community? I had been trying so hard to be white so long. And I had been told by everyone that I ever met that I sound white, act white. I was in the middle of being like, where do I belong? I don't feel like I belong in Quebec. I don't feel like I have anything to do with the culture here. I had rejected already subconsciously, consciously, I'm not too sure. So much of my Caribbean roots, but I wasn't really taught much of it. And then I was discouraged from it at school. You know, I had all these things going on at once. I just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to read up on my stuff and I'm going to teach myself and I just kind of like got on to convincing myself. It sounds so odd to say that, you know, you're black. <laughs> doesn't matter how you act. Get in touch with that. Get in touch with your black side. Stop shunning it. Stop thinking bad about it, you know, subconsciously. Because after all that process of assimilation, I will call it, when I go to school and I'm being taught that my blackness is not accepted here, you just turn your eye to it, you turn your back to it, you just ignore it. And well, I mean me, that's what happened to me. And then as I grew older, and then I heard people in high school and so on being like, you're like a cool black person, or you're an Oreo, black on the outside and white on the inside. It's not a compliment. And you have, <laughs> and I realized like, oh my gosh, and it's a waking up. It's so sad. Like I was being beat up and didn't know. You see this kind of unity in the way the Black community was getting together in the United States. And then they were getting together here too, which the feeling of the Black community coming together, I, I haven't experienced that here <laughs> because of where I grew up and how I grew up. In that moment of trying to find my identity, I was also, uh, I'm feeling called to, to be with my community at this time while we're all aching. And I can be there too, because I belong to be there too, kind of thing. When I went to New York just recently, we went to Harlem and you're on like Martin Luther King Boulevard and Malcolm X. Right. It's like the history is right there. So if you're growing up in say Harlem, you're completely immersed in the history. You're walking where history has taken place. It would be hard not to know what's been going on. Not only that, but you guys are kind of still actively working on civil rights still. So it's kind of hard to say like Black history, huh? When you're there. Here, the way the society is made up, we don't even know much about the history of the Indigenous people of Canada. We know very basic things, but as time passes, it's like, oh, and Canada also did this and killed this many people and, you know, assassinated this many kids, you know, and you're like, whoa, what? <laughs> so we don't know the history of the land here. And then to be a daughter of immigrant parents who didn't, for some reason, you know, trickle down any of this knowledge, you're oblivious to the fact that these are things to know. I really just wanted to know what has been going on. And so I put myself up to date with that. When I started to try to just figure out my identity, doing my family tree and knowing that my family tree just doesn't go anywhere. 
we don't know anything. We know my great grandmas. And then past that, we've got no paper trail of anything. Is that because and, of a slave history? Yeah. 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 I think that's what draws me always. If I'm reading books, I like to read books that are maybe uh, historical fictions about that time. It really makes me emotional and it hurts me because there's a whole bunch of people that have existed that I'm, I'm a product of that I can't even reference them. They're just erased. That's very, very painful. I would imagine it's even more painful to know that it was erased on purpose. Yeah. I mean, this isn't even an accident. It's not like a records building burned down. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is a, a group of people did this to another group of people and erased them on purpose. It's extremely painful. All these feelings, all this pain as I'm going nowhere with my family tree and I'm reading books about enslaved ancestors and so on and so forth. And I'm very emotional. And then George Floyd gets murdered by police and there's uprising in, in the U.S. and there's people protesting here too. And I feel really called to be involved as well. Do you feel anything particular about your unique intersectional role as a Black woman? I have definitely had to think a lot about that recently because well this is going to be a lot of information it's very personal but I don't I'm, I'm okay with sharing I just got out of a marriage that has ended because of abuse and so I had to navigate the system being a black woman and I kept feeling slapped in the face with not many people caring, going to the police and really just showing evidence. And many people tell other people that are going through abusive situations to take down note of all incidences so that you have proof. I have tons and tons of proof and nothing has happened. I have gone through the system with a lot of evidence showing abuse and threats and so on and coming out feeling like no one has paid attention to me. And my ex is white white European and somehow comes off untouched. It's very strange. And I went through that whole situation wondering, why isn't anyone mobilizing themselves? You know, I'm paying a lawyer. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm going to the police. And everyone seems to be kind of like, okay with this. Okay with my mistreatment. <laughs> I've had some situations being a nurse because I'm a nurse. I'm a trained nurse. And so working with patients and being one-on-one -on -one in a closed room with white men saying very, very inappropriate things to me and then having like no outlet for that. It's interesting. Are you talking about coworkers or are you talking about patients? Both. I work in a clinic and I have to go and do wound care. Well, I used to work in a clinic, actually. I don't work there anymore. And I have to go into little exam rooms and do wound care. Just I have one-on-one -on -one care. It's a very small closed room. So I'm very vulnerable in that situation. And I've had some incredible situations happen. Though the most incredible, well, like, I don't even know which one's the most incredible, but I was doing <laughs> wound care for this man. And he says, you know, small talk. Are you married? Blah, blah. I'm like, no, you know, I'm not. You have kids? Yeah. And then he's like, oh, so you're a single mom? I was like, hmm. He's like, I see a lot of Black women being single moms. You know, these kids really need their fathers. Wow. I don't know what to say because I'm a professional. I'm at work. I see this person weekly. 
I am noticing myself in these situations where something is happening to me. I know that it's not okay. I don't have the words to say anything about it right now. Hours later, I'll be like thinking about it and thinking about it. I'll be like, I should have said this and I should have said that. I'm mean, happens to everybody, right? Or not only that, just having an experience that makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm not exactly sure why I'm uncomfortable. And then later being like, oh yeah, because that is extremely inappropriate to tell me because blah, 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 blah. You know, like, and I think about it and I'm like, yeah, because that's a stereotype that's racist, you know? And I think about that later, but in that moment I was, this was recent. So I was like, Oof, wow, how could you say that? And this same person just went on and on and on about stereotypes. You see a group of black kids in a park, you know, who's making trouble, you know, who's the dealing in gangs, black kids, you know, and he's saying that to me, it was just shocking. You know, I was like, you're aware in my head, like you're aware that I am black because I speak Quebecois French because my mannerisms, people are associating it to acting very white my whole life. You're so white. You're so white. This is all I hear. For some reason, this happens so many times in my exam room. People will say like, I hope this doesn't offend you. And then say a whole bunch of racist stuff after that, because they think somehow that I'm some kind of safe Negro. You know, I had a patient request, I brush her hair. And I said, no, it is not my job. And then she was like, you're my favorite Negro. It's like, I don't, don't even, I mean, know. I don't even have, have what to say to this. I mean, this is shocking even to me. Exactly. So that's overt. These things are like, they're smacking me in the face of, okay, this is inappropriate. There are countless other micro instances in my workplace. And then also with coworkers too, like, um, anyways, just a bunch of little microaggressions that well, build up over time. I like to use the podcast as a teaching tool. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to let folks know that if you're ever in a conversation with someone who is marginalized and you are not part of that community and you start to say, I hope you're not offended by this, but that's when you just stop. stop. Right? Just yes. stop. Don't say it. <laughs> If it's already crossing your mind that this might be inappropriate or could come across as inappropriate, find something else to say. Talk about anything, but don't say whatever it was you were going to say. That's your that's your first clue to know <laughs> that you're about to say something completely inappropriate is when you have to preface it with, I hope this doesn't offend you. Yeah, it's shocking, but it's happened. <laughs> And I'm sure I've been that person. That's what makes me really embarrassed mm. is knowing that part of my evolution was learning to not be that person. And probably 10 years from now, I will be looking at things I did now and say, mm-hmm. wow, you know, wow, what did I, what was I thinking? It's growth. And anyway, that's why we're having this conversation is to help people hear. I want people to hear voices like yours so that they understand what it comes off like. What does it feel like on the other side of this? Because a lot of white people are never going to hear this otherwise. At a certain point in my life, maybe not this overt, like uh, you're my favorite Negro kind of thing, but Sometimes, well, I've looked back at my life and I've noticed that people will use me as permission. Can I say this? They'll test the waters with me and so on. And I used to be very like, oh yeah, for sure, you know, kind of embarrassing to say that you encouraged these racist things or whatever they might be or enforced these stereotypes or encouraged it. But it was so part of 
my survival to do that. But then it just became second nature. It was just like I assimilated so much. I didn't even notice that I was being used as a sounding board. I was just kind of like, oh. Yeah. And that's another thing, I guess, that is a good learning experience for the white folks in my audience is just because somebody is telling you that it's okay, they may not be comfortable telling you that it's not. As a white person, that you may feel like you are this non-threatening thing, but the history that this other person brings to the table makes them sometimes cautious. Just because you're getting an affirmative response or no response at all from something doesn't mean that you should take that as the rubber stamp of approval that this is actually okay. Absolutely. That's definitely something to keep in mind. Like we don't also know the process that everybody's in. So it's like a continuous learning process. Following you, for example, on social media and other people who are trying to spread the word of, well, you know, this isn't appropriate to say, and this is like, sometimes you just don't realize and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I say that. I want to stop that. You, you don't know what process people are at in their journeys and so on. Recently, I'm much more conscious of the world I live in and my situation in it, where I am in it. I'm listening more to what people in my surroundings are saying, and I'm letting them know now I'm getting better at it. I'm not amazing at it. You know, I'm detecting things and I'm letting them know, well, that makes me feel uncomfortable for this reason, you know, and maybe you should consider the way you go about this. An example of this is I've had an acquaintance for 15 years or so. And since I'm in French Quebec, this person happens to be Francophone, but I speak four languages. And that person also speaks the same four languages that I speak. Because it's exhausting. English is my first language and French is technically my second. And even if I do speak French fluently, after maybe a half an hour of conversation, my brain gets exhausted of trying to find the words and translating real quick and so on and so forth. So with this person, I switch sometimes to English. And then I used to get many dirty looks of, why are you speaking to me in English? And then I would switch back. And then I saw that person recently. Mm -hmm. And they asked me to speak French in one of our conversations while we were speaking English. This time it just rubbed me the wrong way. This time it's kind of like a click. And I was like, oh my gosh, why do you keep doing this? And it's really bothering me, you know? So I had a conversation with them and I, I said, kind of in the light of what we're talking about today, I was saying, I grew up here and I spent my whole life until very recently trying to make other people feel comfortable around me, about me, about what I look like, how I had my hair, how I spoke, the things I did, and then the language I speak. And it's a lot of control. It's a lot of micromanaging myself to make sure that other people feel comfortable about me. It's late. And I told her, yes, it's exhausting. And I told her, I'm tired and I'm born here. And every time you tell me that I should be speaking in French, because French is a major issue in Quebec, you're reminding me that I'm a second-class citizen here and that I need to be speaking the language of you all. I'm Black, but I'm born here. People don't know that. It's kind of like I walk down the street and they're like, you speak really good French. I'm like, yeah, because I'm Quebecer. <laughs> I'm born here. This is technically supposed to be my country, my province, my this, my that, whatever, you know? But I keep being reminded that despite all that, you don't belong. 
you need to be doing this. And then that person had a kind of like a revelation, I suppose, you know, and to consciousness of that. And then it didn't go quite well because there were so many other issues that the relationship oh. didn't didn't continue. I was just like, my eyes just kept being open to other things. I was like, oh my gosh, there's like too many things. I feel safer actually just not interacting with this person. It's too sure. uncomfortable. Especially now I'm listening for those things and I'm not shying away from saying them like I used to. Now I used to encourage the opposite, but now I'm conscious of it and it, it hurts me when I hear things that are inappropriate or racist or xenophobic or transphobic or any of these things that I believe in, you know, or that I support. Now I feel like along with owning my identity, I'm listening to people's speech with a different ear. When you start to pay attention to the things that other people are saying to you, and how that sounds to you, you start to become more aware, or you have an opportunity, I should say, to work on becoming more aware of the mm. things that we say that impact others in a different way. Yes. And just on personal growth, I've been working on that a lot. There are definitely some things in my speech that me and certain people in my, in my entourage have been really, really working on ableist language. Wow. It hurts my ears, but not many people are onto that yet. But when you're onto it, you can't turn it off. You hear it and it burns the ears, but it's hard to go out and talk about it. My daughters, I talk to them about it. They'll have it from the get-go to try not to speak in ableist terms. But when you tell anybody, you know, don't say this word because it's ableist. I'm getting looks of what? Like ableists? A lot of people don't even, that's not on the radar. If we attempt to try to live on this planet in some kind of harmony with people in our immediate surroundings and respect people, that's the least we can do, which is at least try to talk in a respectful manner. It's a lot of work. Sometimes you have to, as much as possible, put yourself in the shoes of someone else. Once you get that understanding of how something could be painful to receive, that consciousness is awoken, you know, and you could just be like, okay, I understand why I'm not saying this. Language does matter. So when I'm looking back at my life and all the words that were said to me and all the things that were said to me that were racist or this or that, and that I'm not actually consciously taking note of them as such, but later when I when I'm older and I look at myself and I, I'm like, oh my gosh, who am I? Which was essentially the question that I asked, which sent me on that journey. And I realized that I had been damaged. I had been, I've said multiple times, like beaten up over the years. And it does cause damage because I'm still working on repairing that. I'm still working on detecting my internalized racism, which is important that I recognize that I have. Because if I don't recognize I have it, then I can't start to think about, well, why am I perming my hair? It's from when I was a young, 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 young child, my mom has always cried while doing my hair. Oh, I can't wait to perm your hair. It's so tough. Oh my gosh. I get, you know what I mean, right? By perming yes. your hair. <laughs> and then, you know, I can't wait. I can't wait to perm your hair. And then finally I got my hair permed and I was like, oh my gosh, I can finally be closer to my goal. I'm being sarcastic, which would be being white. <laughs> no, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> and so now as time has passed and I'm looking and I was like, well, the only reason why I was perming my hair is because I wanted to look white. I wanted everything to match up. All the work I had been doing on changing myself and morphing myself, it's only fitting that the outside looks 
Yeah. And so I stopped and I got my hair in locks instead. Kept my hair natural. (laughs) This is the personal choice, of course. Everyone can do what they want with their hair. But for me, it was something of identity, something that made me feel like the way that my hair grows on my head is beautiful. Black is beautiful. And that's something that I had not said to myself ever because I was putting scarves on my head to pretend like I had long, flowy, blonde hair for most of my young life. And then I burnt my scalp trying to have long, flowy hair. That's damaging on all the levels. (laughs) It's damaging physically because when you burn your hair, you burn your scalp and you have scabs, you know, if it's often it's like that. And then it has horrible, horrible health effects. I learned that through nursing on women's bodies. So it's damaging and all these like little things, these little things. So for everybody out there who's part of a marginalized group, I'm sure they've had to deal with all these little things being said or little things being done that one day you're like, oh, ow. (laughs) And then you don't want to tolerate that anymore. So that's kind of like the process I went through. But anyways, realizing inside that I had this internalized racism, it hurt to admit it. It's not nice to say. It's embarrassing. And then when you realize that that's what's going on and that's why you think certain things or do certain things, well, then you can analyze it and you can ponder it and you can change some behaviors and be more loving and accepting of who you are. And then you look at your community in a different way. And and then that was for me, it was like, I'd like to be a part, please. Because I've been so putting myself on the outside of feeling like I could belong in some kind of black community because I was so white, because I've been told my whole life that I'm so white, I'm so white. What I have been doing is connecting, number one, with family that I had not been connecting with for a really long time. And that's like a very, like my family's Black, so that's one thing. And then I'm able to kind of like through them meet other people and so on and so forth. Talking to some people from my past that had been let go, you know, in uh, in Montreal. Oh, yes, I've moved to a part of Montreal that has a high... <laughs> concentration of Caribbean people. Growing up, my family lived in in this part of the city. You walk down the street and you go to the store and you hear Caribbean accents. I hear my Trinidadian accent there. Well, not mine because I don't have one, but I I could... And I could hear it and it feels familiar and it feels homey and it's nice. And I made this move for many reasons, but I have two daughters. And to me, because of my upbringing, I thought it'd be important that when they go down the street, that they can see people like them. And this is something that feels nice. It's nice too, because I had the opposite. It's nice to go to the park and you're playing and... There are people who look like you that you could play with. I mean, they play with anybody, but it's just that thing. It's small. You might, I don't know if they, I mean, they'd notice it because I talk about things like this, but it's a little thing that means a lot. You're just not automatically othered. Yeah. Everywhere you go, (laughs) you just blend in. You're coming out of a context where you are the exception as you walk down the street and Mm. you're now in a context where you open the door and you are just like everyone else. The chances of my kids say, I don't know what the chances are, but I would hope that it's less that like when they grow up and they have their curly hair, that they're not like, oh, that they might want to change anything to look like something else. Obviously, as people, 
we have all kinds of sources to make us feel bad about ourselves, you know, media. But just on that one thing, being Black, it's just I didn't want them to have the same experiences that I did that ended up being so traumatic to me where... I wanted to change so many things about myself so I could blend in. I want them to know that the way that you look is phenomenal. It's absolutely fine. And you don't have to go changing every micro thing about yourself to blend in to something that I could never blend into. No matter how hard you try, if you're Black, you can't be white. So what would you say if somebody said, well, what you're doing here is just self-segregating? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Self-segregating. When I ask the question, I'm not asking it sincerely. I don't wonder, and I don't no, think no, that's no, what no, you're no. doing. No, 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 I know, I know, I know. And I just wanted to note that I had a guest on previously who described communities like the one you're describing as defensive formations, that what's going on here is that you, when you have a society that is hostile to a particular group of people, they will feel more secure and safer among one another in a community of peers. When I went to Harlem, even if I moved to like a place that's highly populated of Caribbean immigrants, the feeling is not the same as when I went to Harlem. The community there seemed so strong that you feel in the way that people are talking to you. No one knew us, but people were stopping us on the street and talking to us. And it was, oh my gosh, what an experience. You automatically, well, we felt automatically like, oh my gosh, you know, ah, my heart is glowing, you know, like I feel automatically we're like, what if we moved here? It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we wouldn't move to the States. <laughs> but it's like, and it's an interesting feeling like, yes, somehow I feel like I'm part of this and that feels good. And I don't even quite feel that here, but where I moved is a little bit more like it than where I was living before. There were like a few other black people on the street and that's fine, you know, but You feel a level of possible hostility. It's just like you don't have to deal with this extra layer of possible confrontation because of race. You know, you eliminate that one thing in the place that you live. What you were describing with your friend when you had to speak French. Yeah, you just eliminate that one extra feeling of inferiority on one area of your life. That feeling of I don't belong here. There are certain relatives like maybe grandma where when you're around grandma, you don't swear. Mm -hmm. So you have to be on your best behavior when grandma's over. Code switching then. Yeah, yeah. And and so grandma's nice and, you know, you like to visit with grandma and grandma's great. Love grandma. But it's really nice to be able to relax and just kind of hang out with your friends where you can be yourself and you can swear and you can talk Mm -hmm, about whatever mm -hmm. you want to talk about. You can kind of be yourself more with certain people than with other people where it's not like it's a horror show, but you do have to police yourself a little bit to be with them. When you were talking about your friend where you had to speak French, it takes effort. And when you're walking around all the time having to put in that effort because you're not white, and then you move into a community where that doesn't matter, you get to relax. Yes. I'm paying close attention to what people are saying. Where I was living and all my neighbors were white, they'd have these get togethers and I would go and it would, I would be the only black person there. That's fine. I always start with that feeling of, hmm, where is my upset going to come from? You know, (laughs) I know that sounds so negative, but who's going to say something slightly offensive to me because it happens all the time. And so if here and I go to the store and, you know, 
I have these encounters with aunties and so on that, you know, I'm talking to my kids and they're like, listen to your mother, you know, and it's like, oh, <laughs> it's like, yes, it takes a village, you know, <laughs> there's that feeling as opposed to, hmm, that person just said that thing and, oh, you know, it's exhausting. So there's just this one area of my life where, okay, I live in this small area of Montreal where there are slightly less chances that I might have these kind of encounters where I live. So I take that. It's nice. I go to the park and then, you know, I have more opportunities to feel like I'm part of that Black community that I've been wanting to be a part of so badly. Ultimately, though, wouldn't ideally we be living in a society where everyone can relax and be themselves? It's not a reality, but it's an ideal. So right now what we're describing is It feels good to self-segregate because you can be yourself and you don't have to feel that potential hostility or code switch or judgments, all the things that you felt growing up that you were told weren't good enough because you were Black. What would you want people to know or to consider or to keep in mind going forward when it comes to creating a society where people don't feel like they have to self-segregate in order to be themselves? I think that we should all look at ourselves first, of course. Know our own biases. That's what we say, at least in nursing. When you're going into a room, you might have a patient that is of a religion that you don't believe in or anything that just doesn't float your boat. But know that. Be aware of that because the way that you treat them, that can either make them feel like they're in the hands of someone that can heal them or your nursing work will go nowhere if they don't feel safe. Just knowing what's going on within you, which is a lot of work, and then understanding how you project that towards the outwards. There's so many people on the earth. It's this idea that we would like that everyone gets along or that everyone at least respects the other and that we don't have to self segregate. Oof, that's a dream and a half. But at least in our, our micro bubbles, we could probably surround ourselves with people who are doing that work because not everyone's doing that work. People don't even know that there's work to do. If we surround ourselves with those people, then our spaces open up. There's not so much that need to auto-segregate if we find ourselves people that are doing that same work and then we could work on ourselves, but together where we allow that growth with each other. That's what I've done. And that has helped a lot. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be with people who are also conscious. They're so conscious that they're spreading that even to those who are not doing that work because you believe it. And the way that you talk, the way that you interact with others is is role modeling. You know, you're setting that example of, well, this is not tolerable to me. And then so other people can see that like, oh, okay. It's kind of like setting boundaries. And I think that when you have those boundaries and you set them correctly, other people interact with you that want to kind of push those boundaries or that are on about something that you don't agree with. It has been in my experience that they will reflect later on that incident or that encounter that you guys have had where your boundaries were firm, you know, and you're like, hmm, they'll think about it later. At least with the people that I've interacted, some people, they don't care and they are not ready to do that work as we've discussed. If we all want to be in a place where we don't have to auto-segregate, we just got to do the work. One of the more important parts of doing that work is to be open to learning, which means being open to correction which means dealing with 
issues like fragility, which is just another word for ego getting in the way, not mm-hmm. taking it personally. When someone tells you this is hurtful to me, or this is a little bit racist, what you just said, mm-hmm. to be able to hear that, to listen to it, to take it in and to be wanting to do better to the point that you will hear it and understand it and be appreciative of somebody helping you to become a better person mm-hmm. as opposed to being offended that someone called you racist. Oh yeah. That's a big one. When someone tells you "Oof, what you said there, that's not nice. You know, you're like, oh. <laughs> but I'm <laughs> a know, nice like, person. <laughs> exactly. Your first instinct is to say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? uh, you want to defend yourself. You feel attacked. But if you really care about other people and being respectful to other people, oh my gosh, you just got to swallow that and be like, okay, all right, yeah. I hear that. It's a great opportunity for growth. I started this with myself. Oof, you know, I beat myself up about it because I have an issue with internalized racism where like these things are coming from me that I got to correct within myself. At least it's less embarrassing, but it's still embarrassing because it's like, oof, did I just think that? No, 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 no. We got to work through that. That's not happening. Like, cause you, you don't believe that, but why did you just automatically spring up in your mind and say that that's many years of training done to my head, to my mind and the way that I think about myself And the things that I learned to hate about myself that I've extended outwards, it's a lot of work and it's quite embarrassing sometimes. But once you open that door up, this will be better in the long term. Yeah, it's great. Is there anything else on your agenda that we need to hit? Exactly what I was going to go look at. We hit a lot of stuff. I just want to thank you so much for giving me your time tonight, Johanna. It's been fantastic talking to you and I really enjoyed your story. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to go on and on about my life and my realizations. It's uh, very nice of you. Thank you. All right. You're very welcome. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.